Well, amen. Great music. You know, it occurred to me last hour that if you, if you sang those songs from the depths of your heart that we just sang, you'd be a Christian. You really would be. And we are talking about the faith of our fathers in our study of the book of Genesis. And so it only makes sense that we would look at the father of our faith. And that is exactly how Abraham is described by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 4 and verse 11. He is the father of all who believe. And the reason the Apostle Paul said that, and let me put it differently, the time the Apostle Paul was thinking of when he said that was the time of our text this morning. Abraham, it's nighttime. The entire month's activities are swirling through his mind. If you've been with us, you know that in his rescue attempt, his successful rescue attempt of Lot, he went after some mighty kings from the east and whipped them. On his way back with the spoils, he met both the king of Salem, Melchizedek, and the king of Sodom, who represented the kings to whom Abraham had defended. But Abraham did not accept the offer of the king of Sodom, so he basically disrespected him. So now Abraham has enemies all around him. He's laying in his tent. It's nighttime, and fear is beginning to grip his soul. This is truly the dark night of Abraham's soul. And God appears to him. And so it shouldn't surprise us how he does. Let's look at it. Genesis chapter 15, if you haven't turned there already. And just the first few verses as we ease into this this morning. Genesis chapter 15. God says to Abraham, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not. Abram, I am your shield. I am your reward. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, Oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Who this guy is, is your guess as good as mine. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring. And a member of my household will be the heir. Eliezer is, is apparently so close to Abram, he stands to inherit it all. And behold, the word of the Lord came to Abram. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. So we're talking about the faith of our fathers, and today the father of our faith. As I said, fear has settled into Abram's heart for all the reasons I've already mentioned. And there are three things every one of us need to embrace here this morning. If we're going to have faith, real, bona fide, genuine faith in God, which is what some of you are lacking, there are three things that have to happen to have true faith in God. You embrace these things. First, the promise of his presence. 
Notice that God says to Abram right out of the chute, fear not. That's the first time this expression occurs in the Bible. In fact, this is the most frequent command found anywhere in Scripture. There are 365 times in the Bible it says, fear not. So you got to fear not for every day of the year. Jesus would often say this. Jesus even met the apostle Paul in the, in the book of Acts when he was facing fears of his own in the middle of the night like Abram. And Jesus said, don't fear. I have many people in this city. When I first became a Christian, I was filled with a mixture of joy and fear. I came from a big family. And one by one, they were rejecting the message of the gospel that I had received. And one by one, my friends were ostracizing me. And I was lonely. I was, all I had was my wife, and she wasn't even a Christian at the time. And a little fear was beginning to creep in. And what I discovered then, and I have discovered repeatedly since then, that the greatest thing for battling fear is the promise of the presence of God. Notice how God describes himself to Abraham. He says, I am. And that's the first time this occurs in the Bible. I am. This speaks of his presence. Again, the greatest thing for battling fear is the promise of the presence of God. Even the Lord Jesus, after he had died, after he'd rose from the dead, after he'd spent 40 days with his disciples, you would think they would be fearless. But no, the Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 28, they were fearful. And so Jesus said, listen, you're going to go, you're going to make disciples of all nations, you're going to baptize them, you're going to teach them whatever I've commanded you, and here, here's the deal, I will be with you, what? Always. So don't fear. So don't fear. I'll be with you always. Do you believe Jesus is here? Do you believe he's present here? A couple months ago, I was with the Engage uh, church planters. All five of our churches were together. We do this once a year. All the lead guys were going to go. We're going to go down to Kansas City, hang out for a day, do some, you know, envision what God would have us, do some planning, do some praying. And so we, we were coming from different directions, so we decided to meet at a convenience store uh, just south of the, the metro. And we all pulled in at different times. And I saw my friend Dave Heisterkamp walking into the convenience store, so I thought I'd have a little fun with him. So I walked in behind him. He was at the counter. I walked up behind him and I said, stick him up. And he went like this. The two ladies behind the counter ducked behind the counter. And I realized what I just said. Dave blew a gasket. What are you doing? You don't say that in a convenience store. I said, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And by now the ladies behind the counter are kind of, you know, they're getting their own composure and and, uh, and the, lady, the young lady behind the counter goes, hey, uh, Jesus is watching you. <laughs> and I, I looked at Dave, and Dave looked at me. I went, what? Yeah, yeah, Jesus is watching you. I said, what? And she goes, and up in the corner, above the Swisher Sweet Cigars, was Jesus. I didn't know Jesus was plastic. <laughs> and he's blue turns out. (laughs) 
I, I didn't know what to say. I went back, got my stuff, went back to the counter. I said, uh, hey, look, I said, I am, again, I am so sorry for what I did. But I, I want you to know that Jesus really is watching. And the, by this time, another elderly lady was there. She's kind of a curmudgeon. She's leaning up against the counter. And she goes, he's always watching. And I still didn't know what to reply. I mean, even in superstition, even superstitiously, people believe God is present. I remember Glenn Buxton, the lead guitarist for Alice Cooper, used to say, uh, when we used to talk about having your, you ought to have your Bible with you at all times. You mean, he goes, you mean like your plastic Jesus? I said, what? Yeah, you know, doesn't matter whether it rains or freezes as long as I got my plastic Jesus sitting on the dashboard of my car. Anybody ever heard that expression before? Have you ever seen people put plastic Jesuses on the dashboard of their car? Yeah, some of you elderly remember. I remember when I was a real little boy. Just trying to dis- disassociate from you real elderly. <laughs> but even superstitiously, people believe in the... Pre- but yet it's just that. It's not real. You're not even aware of it. You're like Jacob in chapter 28. He's running from his brother. You remember that? He's scared, spitless. God meets him. The pre-incarnate Jesus meets him. He sees this ladder. Angels going up and down. He wakes up and he says, this is the presence of God, and I was unaware of it. If you're going to have real faith, then you got to believe in the promise of his presence. Jesus Christ is here right now. Secondly, you got to believe the promise of God's protection. God says to Abram, I'm not just present i am i am the i am but i am i am your shield i'm your protector remember abram had just turned down an earthly reward from the king of sodom and in so doing disrespected him so now he has enemies all around him this whole dialogue between god and abram the first dialogue we find in scripture between abraham and god is all taking place while abraham's in his tent at night Fear is filling his heart, and God says, I'm going to be your protector. It's basically Abraham, Abraham realized, I got nobody else, but I have God. That's enough. Like Martin Luther said, one with God is a majority. Abraham's enemies were real. And he would be a marked man for the rest of his life, as would the children of Israel, up to the present hour. But God would be their shield, he would be his shield as he has been their shield to this present hour. Let me tell you something. Abraham's enemies were real, and so are yours. And they're more real than the physical enemies that might threaten us or threaten you. It is the enemy of your soul, it is sin, it is Satan, and it is hellfire. And every one of you here this morning who do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you need the protection of God because you are facing a certainty of judgment and hell and fire and everything the Bible tells us about being separated from God. It will consume you. With all of these natural disasters we've been experiencing the last several months, be it hurricanes, earthquake and Mexico, and now the fires, these terrible fires in California. 
I, I thought about my friend. I, I got a friend, in, in fact, he spoke at this church several years ago, Philip DeCourcy. He pastors the Kindred Church there. And I, I, uh, I, get, I, I got a hold of him. I said, Philip, these, it looks like these fires are in your, your area. I mean, have they come close to the church? This is the picture he sent me. And that's the church. As those fires rage down this hill, I preached in this church just a couple of years ago. He, the firefighters, all the elders of the church got buckets. They got a bucket brigade. They got hoses out. And they were able to protect the entire property from being consumed. Let me tell you something. You don't need water to douse your fire. You need blood. The blood of Jesus, God's son, we just sang about, will cleanse you and protect you from all your sins. You need the promise of God's protection. And then for the balance of time of our time, you need the promise of God's provision. So he says to Abram, he says, I am, I'm, your, I'm the present God. I'm your protector. And he says, I'm also your reward. I'm your reward. And it's going to be a great reward, he says. Abraham, now this is interesting, he's telling the guy who doesn't have any kids this. He's telling a guy he's promised generations innumerable to him. But to Abram, he's childless, and that was a sign of not being blessed. And he, and he says everything's going to go to Eliezer. I don't know where Eliezer came from. Apparently, as Abraham made his way through the fertile crescent, apparently he, made it, he, he met up with this guy from Damascus. He became his closest confidant and his, his heir to inherit everything. You say, well, God, but hadn't God already promised Abraham he was going to have offspring? Yes, but what, what kind of offspring? Uh, if you look at the promises that God had given to Abraham, here's one. Look at the year. This is an interesting process. Here's one right here. The, uh, Genesis 12. I will make you a great nation. That's the first promise of God to Abraham. I mean, pretty powerful, pretty encouraging, but not not a lot of specificity. The next couple of lines later, to your offspring I will give this line. Now we're getting a little close. Offspring, that sounds like it might actually come from Abram, right? But not necessarily. In fact, he doubles down in the 13th chapter. He says, for all the land you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if you could count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. But there are other ways to have offspring that weren't necessarily physiological. I remember uh, years ago we were buying property around the church here because we were so landlocked and there was a little old lady that lived on the north side over here, owned almost a couple of acres. We needed it. We asked her if she'd sell it to us. She almost did. I was negotiating with her. The price seemed to be right. She had no, she was never married. She had no children. She had no relative. She was really getting old. And so we were trying to buy the property. And uh, the next thing I knew, I was dealing with a social worker who just happened to be hanging out there a lot. And as it turned out, it all went to the social worker. She became the heir. Some of you have probably had similar experiences of different kinds. So Abraham is promised that through his offspring, and you couldn't even count them because they're going to be like the dust of the earth, but offspring of what kind? 
Look again what God says to Abraham here. He says, I'm gonna give you a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. Now we're talking. This is the promise that the heir that's going to cover the dust of the earth, if you could count it, is gonna come from Abram's own loins. From he himself will come this posterity. Abraham, if you could just, just think about this, he is reeling. He's like 100 years old. He is absolutely reeling over this promise from God. And yet God is not done with Abraham yet. It's almost as if it wasn't, it, it, God changed his mind. It's like, okay, uh, uh, you know, I have you looking down if you can count the dust. But maybe I should have you look up. And so God, according to verse 5, takes Abraham out of the tent in the dead of night and has him look up. And he says, Abram, look up to the heavens and count the stars if you can. That will be the number of your offspring. And the Bible tells us that Abram believed the Lord and it was counted unto him as righteousness. That passage of scripture you're looking at, the Apostle Paul picked up on again and again and again. It is the foundational verse for our faith and how to have faith. Abraham believed God and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. What does all that mean? That, there's so much packed into that little statement. What does it mean that he believed God? He believed God bestowed. He believed the promise that God had given this promise, which was, I mean, he's 100, his wife's 90. It's impossible to believe that unless you're believing God, right? Do you want to know exactly what was going on in Abraham's heart? The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 4. I'm going to cut in on the context. Here's what he says. Talking about Abram, he says, In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, she's about 90, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. Now watch this. But he grew strong in his faith. He gave glory to God. And here's the kicker. Underline it. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. That is what it means to have faith. Fully convinced fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith, now this is, this, is, this is for you and me. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone. This is translating into 2017. But for ours also, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised him, uh, raised from the dead, Jesus, our Lord. Hallelujah. This is how you have faith. You believe this promise from God. Now you know what was happening in his heart. And with that, God confirms this promise to Abraham in the most dramatic of ways. In fact, back to 
Genesis 15. Here's what it says right after that. And God said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to possess. But he said, oh Lord, how, how do I know if I'll possess it? He said, bring me a heifer three years old, a male goat three years old, a ram three years old, turtle dove, young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each over against the other. He didn't cut the birds in half. They just went across from each other. And the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. So this is the drama. God's made this promise to Abram. And now God appeals to a rite that was familiar in those days. If you were going to make a solemn promise to someone, and your very lives and livelihood depended on your word being kept in the promise, you would take a donkey and cut it in half. And if it was really a big deal, you'd take a calf or a cow. And the two of you would hold hands and you would walk between those bloody parts to seal the deal. The word covenant means to cut. That's why they cut the animal in half. And you were saying, as you walked through those bloody parts, may I be like this bloody animal if I don't keep my word. And the other person was saying the same thing. It was basically a self-curse is what it was. But this is different. This is different than the... In, in a couple of different ways than the normal covenants that were made. One, just the gravity of all. You've got animal cut in two, animal cut in two, animal cut in two, and then all these other. I mean, th- th- this is to show how very important this was. So the gravity is there, but the other thing is the fact that Abraham now has been told by God to cut these animals in half, blood everywhere. He understands the rites of those days. He understands the rituals. He fully expects God himself to come down, take his hand, and the two of them walk between those parts. It would have been awesome. But that's not what happens. In fact, just as Abraham is ready to do this, look what the scripture says. Look at verse 12. The Bible tells us, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. This is, this is akin to the presence of God. Whenever you're in the presence of God, it's a fearful thing. He's having like a nightmare experience. And then he hears God speak. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs. They will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. He's clearly talking about the future Egyptian captivity. The children of Israel, 200 years later, would go down into Egypt. They would become slaves for 400 years. Verse 14, but I will bring judgment on the nation. That's Egypt that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions, and you'll go to your fathers at a good old age, etc. Why does God do this? Abraham's cut these animals in half, the blood's everywhere, he's expecting God to come down, they're going to walk through this thing together. God puts them in a trance, puts them in a dream, and in the dream, God speaks to him and tells him about a coming judgment upon his own people that are going to come from his loins. Why, why all this? 
And why does he tell us that the people are going to come out with abundance? By the way, if you read the account in Exodus, they didn't, remember when they finally left? They basically robbed the Egyptians of everything. Why tell them all this? I think it's because God was telling Abram, and he's telling you and I, that the people of God, the Jewish people, would be a suffering people. Nations would oppress them, would hurt them, would try to annihilate them. Try, I mean, this, I think that's what's pictured in the, him chasing away the birds of prey, it says. Why? I think that, that pictures Egypt and every other nation that's trying to swoop down on Israel and kill them, but they can't kill them. They're like dandelions. They just keep coming back. And they're one of the most abundant people on earth, are they not? So God tells them all this in this dream. And then while he's in this dream, look what happens in verse 17. When the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Abram is sleeping. He expects God to come through, and traditionally, like everybody, you take each other's hands, you walk between the parts, you die if you don't keep your deal, I die if I don't keep my end of the deal. But Abraham's asleep. And this is called the theophany, the smoking pot is, is, is God. He's moving through, this, this, like a furnace, he's moving through these parts by himself. This is God's way of saying What I'm doing for you, Abram, is unilateral. What I'm doing for you is unconditional. I'm the only one who can do this. You could never keep your end of the deal, but I can because I'm God. That's that's why I love what what the writer of Hebrews says when he says in in chapter 6, verse 13, in Hebrews 6, 13, he says, when God, I think we have it here, when God... uh, no, no, let's go back. I, I, went, I got ahead of myself. There we go. No, next one. Sorry. For when God made a promise to Abram, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. That's what God was doing. When he was moving through those parts, he was swearing by himself. It's as if God was saying, I'm going to die if I don't keep my word. And this is what I think God was saying to Abraham himself. He was saying, I alone am making this covenant with you. This is on me. I will accomplish this on my own, and you, by faith in me, will be the beneficiary of it. That's what God was saying as he swore by himself. That's why we say, We're not saved by promises we make to God. We're saved by believing the promises God makes to us. But you gotta believe. You have to believe. What does it mean to believe? Abraham believed God and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. What does that mean? John Patton, the missionary to the New Hebrides Islands, to whom it said they were all cannibals. There were no Christians when he arrived. There wasn't anybody that wasn't a Christian when he left. 
He was one of the most amazing missionaries of all time. He also had to translate the language to the natives. And he, he, they did not have a word for faith. They did not have a word to, for believe. He was completely frustrated until one native was running one day and ran into the hut. And he plopped himself down into a chair with these words. It's good to rest my whole weight on this chair. And he said, what did you say? He repeated it. It's good to wait to rest my whole weight on this chair. And Patton said, that's it. That sentence became the one word for faith. And that's what it means to have faith in God. It means that you rest your entire weight upon him, not yourself. Some of you, you have a little weight in the church, a little weight in Jesus, a little weight on your parents, a little weight in Jesus, a little weight on your your, your Heredity, whatever it may be, the good things you do, and a little on Jesus. It's all got to be on Jesus. Otherwise, you're saying, God, I'll take your hand, I'll walk through those parts with you. But when the whole weight's on God, you're acknowledging that salvation is all of God. It's all of God. It's all of God. And some of you need to be saved. You don't have the righteousness of God. Abraham believed in the Lord, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. God's presence is here. Do you believe that? Jesus said to the the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2, I walk in the midst of the churches. That means he's here right now. God's Protection from sin and judgment is, and hell is available. Will you believe that? Because some of you are, are, are facing a certain fiery judgment as we preach. Will you believe that God wants to protect you from that? Not with water to put out a fire, but the blood of Christ that does it. God's provision is Jesus. That's his provision. Jesus Christ, will you believe in him? Remember, when God passed through those bloody parts by himself, he said, may I die if I don't keep my word. Well, guess what? He kept his word, and he still died. He kept his word, but he still died. And Jesus Christ took the curse of your sin and mine upon himself so that you could give up your unrighteousness and give it to him. And he would give you his righteousness because that's what we need. Forgiveness and righteousness you got to put your weight on Jesus. And I'm begging you today, whether you're a little child, a young adult, or somebody who's been around for a half, or, well, I've been around a half century, a long time. Some of you are just trusting other things. You're putting weight in other things, and you're not saved. Today, put your weight 
on Jesus. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for this opportunity to look at the father of our faith, the father of all who believe, Abram. Much to occur yet in his life. His name's even going to get changed. And you would do this miracle. This miracle is still yet to come, but he believed you. And when he did, you credited him. You accounted it to him. You imputed to him your righteousness, which is what you'll do with us if we will believe. I pray for those right now, you right now, who are, your heart has been touched. You're wondering, what have I been trusting in? And today, it's all making sense to you. I would just urge you right now from your heart, confess your sin to God. Confess your unrighteousness to God. Ask him to forgive you for leaning on other things. And today, you turn to Jesus and Jesus alone who could save you from your sins and give you the promise of righteousness and everlasting life. Would you pray that from your heart today, dear friend? And may God, God, would you help all of us today to love you more and more for this great salvation that you've given us in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.